0: My daughter, Elena, started this week off with a family text. Good morning, family. Everyone send an emoji about how you feel towards the upcoming day. So I texted back a smiley emoji, calm and pleasant. My only immediate stressor is what passage I'm going to preach on. Now, usually we have a sermon series going, so I don't normally have to worry about this. But uh, we're in between series, and if anyone has a great idea for a sermon series, we'd like to crowdsource that a little bit and just give you the opportunity. And then, of course, we can say, well, now that's not a good idea, or that is a good idea. So uh, if you have any ideas, bring them to us. But back to the text. So Elena texted back, Mom, preach on this verse. The woman went to her room ate some food and was sad no longer. Now that verse speaks to me almost every day and someone here might need to hear it too. And I just had to know where this mental health verse came from. What was the point of it? Turns out it comes from a chapter uh, a powerful chapter in the Bible where this wo- woman uh and there are a couple men Men mentioned, but along the way. But really, it's mostly this woman and God are wrapped up in a wrestling match. And turns out this is passage is really about prayer and specifically about when you haven't gotten what you want from God. And I feel like I do have to give a trigger warning here. The subject of the wrestling between this woman and God is infertility. Now, someone, when they asked me what I was preaching on today, said, oh, the men don't have to listen then. Women for centuries had to get used to hearing verses that specifically said the word man and assuming that it also meant them and applied to them as well. So this is an opportunity for men to return the favor. You too might need to hear this verse and passage, even if it does speak through the experience of a woman. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Did you guess that's where it came from? There was a certain man of Ramathiam. Now, this man is not important to the story, but of course, we've got to start with a man and give his whole lineage, but this story is not about him. A zoophyte from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, Son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. His whole lineage. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. All of a sudden, I'm hungry for a sandwich. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, This man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. This would have been the fall yearly festival after harvest to give thanks to god for all of his blessings in this past year and also to ask him for the new year and it would also have been the festival of booths where the people of israel remembered that god had brought them out of slavery in egypt so it was a time of a great rejoicing so just think big party big party happening On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. This would not have been the burnt offering for your sins, but it would have been uh, an offering, a fellowship sacrifice, where some of the offering is burnt to God, but the rest of it you get to prepare and eat together with your family and God, everybody all together. So think about family barbecue in which God and the family are rejoicing. But to Hannah he, Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord has, had closed her womb. I don't know, that last phrase. So here we have the problem. Hannah wanted, desperately wanted children. Cultural differences aside, regardless of whether or not your culture believes that the worth of a woman <coughs> is measured by the children she has, That aside, there are people, not just women, but people who really do want to be parents and yet cannot be. And there are also those who don't want children who might not fully understand Hannah's pain. But it is a deep, deep grief to not be able to have children when you really want them. And Hannah had this grief, this open wound that never healed. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And we can hear Hannah's biological clock ticking in that description. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, Penina, used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Wives, what is the answer to this question? (laughs) Husbands are different than children. They don't fill the same slot. And notice that Elkanah didn't say, you are worth more to me than ten sons. He didn't say that. Well, after they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow. Now, it's really risky to make a vow, to make a bargain with God. So note how costly this promise is. O Lord of hosts, if only... You will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. Now, to be fair to Eli, the most common prayer position was standing, eyes lifted to heaven and hands, and praying out loud. Also, it was the festival time, which involved a lot of imbibing. And Eli probably had to kick people out of the temple during this time of the year, and that's why he was sitting at the door. He had to keep the temple orderly. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety, and vexation all this time. I almost feel like uh, Elena could have texted me this verse because even though Hannah had not been through a pandemic, her description hits the mental health nail on the head. How many of us these days are speaking out of great anxiety and vexation? So what did Eli think of her answer? One commentator at this point said, Eli desperately tries to regroup and remember what they told him in seminary about dealing with distraught and angry women. Switching hats from security to clergy, now it's Eli's job to bring God's response to Hannah's prayer. Verse 17, Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. Now, he didn't say that God would grant the petition. This is a pastoral blessing to her prayer. May it be so, amen, is what Eli is saying. Verse 18, and she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her room, ate some food, and was sad no longer. Our passage in our translation puts it, The woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. Kind of like Elena's version of that verse. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house in Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah. That's code for having intimate relations with her. And intimate relations is code for you know what? Uh, And the Lord remembered her. In due time, now the way this is written indicates that some time had passed. Some months had passed and Hannah was still waiting. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She named him Samuel and she said, I have asked him of the Lord. The man Elkanah and all of his household went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and remain there forever. I will offer him as a Nazarite for all time. Her husband Elkanah said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. In that culture, it had been about age three or four. I wonder if she stretched it out. I've always wondered, did she stretch that out a little bit? Verse 24, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is given to the Lord. And she left him there for the Lord. Hannah had a problem she could do nothing about. And twice the passage said, for the Lord has cl- had closed her womb. Now, we know a whole lot more about reproductive health than they did then, but there were some biological reasons for her infertility. But ultimately, and isn't this always the case when we pray over something we desperately want? Ultimately, God is in control, and he has the power to change any situation. The buck stops with God, and Hannah understood this very well. Now, I hope we don't read this chapter in order to get a prayer formula out of it, in order to get a miracle. So, okay, if I'm thinking it through, number one, fast and weak. First, I've got to fast and weep, and then, then eat, and then go into the sanctuary. That's number two, and then number three, uh, manage to get Pastor George observing me from the door, and then number four, pray with my lips moving but making no sound, and then number five, be in such a desperate state that Pastor George suspects that I'm on drugs, and then number six. After several years of being bullied, oh, number six should have been number one first. And then, uh, and God has answered no to my prayers many, many times. And then, number seven, make a huge promise to God, one that will really cost me to follow through. And then, if I do all of those things in the right order, with the right amount of fervor and the right amount of faith in my heart and with the right words, then God will answer yes. God will give me the miracle that I want. I hope you see how prayer formulas, uh, how ridiculous that prayer formula was, but also how desperate we are to get a formula that will fix what we have wrong. We really want it. I love miracles. I love it when God says yes, when all the doctors and the experts have said no. And last week, we publicly celebrated two such miracles in my view that we had no right to expect given the human diagnosis, but that God answered yes to. I am still praising God for that, and I know in my heart that that was God in the case of Nancy and Sherry. I rejoice and praise God for his healing touch. And, and I want to tell you today that God is good. You said all the time? All the time also means when he says no. I pray for miracles all the time. For God to interrupt the normal course of disease, for God to mend brokenness, for God to grant forgiveness, for God to make a way when there is no way. All of these are miracle prayers because they would not happen if nature takes its normal course. I have prayed for infertile couples and God has answered yes in a couple of those instances in a miraculous way that mirrors Hannah against what the doctors diagnose but God has also answered no in a heartbreaking way in other cases usually our prayer formulas center on how much faith the praying person has god must have answered me no because i don't have enough faith in me. I didn't believe it hard enough, but I think that that misses a very critical truth that God's purposes are far beyond what we can ever know. And God can answer no to us for a reason that's really hard for us to understand at the time. So I don't think that Hannah teaches us that God will always answer yes to our prayers for miracles by giving us what we've asked of him. Hannah happened to be living at a very critical juncture in Israel's history in that hinge period between the judges ruling and kings who were to come shortly. And her miracle son, Samuel, was going to be that hinge. She was the first one-of-a-kind, the very first prophet of Israel who would have to usher the country through a very drastic upending social change. Hannah's need lined up with the fulfillment of God's purpose for Israel. And we don't have that purpose in our life. The purpose that God has for us, for me, is different than the purpose he has for you. So this is what I think Hannah teaches us. First of all, Freely ask God for the impossible. Ask God for what your heart desires. Ask him to change circumstances. Plead for his intervention. We worship a powerful God. God of power and a God of love. And I can ask him for anything. And I'm not going to hold myself back by thinking through my human measurement. Oh, I can't pray for that person. They're really old or they're really Obnoxious, or you know, there's some reason why the miracle won't be granted to this person or this, and this other person deserves. I'm not going to hold myself back, I'm not going to measure, I'm not going to uh, assume that God will not give a miracle. I'm just going to ask Him in faith for everything plus the kitchen sink. That's how I'm going to pray to God. He is a God of power and a God of love. Number 2 Hannah teaches us that we have to express our true self to God. True self. You know that ugly crying that involves snot and tears and ugly faces and not being able to get words past your sobs and just bring that to God. If you are angry, bring that to God. If you are bitter, Bring it to God. Pray without the right words, without the right clothes, without being put together. We're in the middle. We're in the middle where we don't understand what God is up to yet. And you don't have to have a proper prayer before God. Instead of the sweet hour of prayer, you know that song, some of you, the sweet hour of prayer? Hannah shows us that we can have a sour hour of prayer. Bring it all to him. We don't have to be toxically positive in prayer. We don't have to present to God a stronger faith than we possess in that moment. For some of our deepest needs, there are no good answers, and and there's no amount of problem-solving that will solve our situation. Bring that to God, the huge, unsolvable, tangled mess in need of God's miraculous touch, just as it is, just as you are, to God in prayer. Hannah teaches us to pray persistently, to audaciously lay our claim to God's grace. So keep on praying. Hannah insisted boldly and audaciously that God's grace belonged to her. Hannah's was a not enough prayer. Her husband was not enough for Hannah. She wanted more. And we can freely say this to God, persistently and stubbornly in prayer. Now, any mom of a young child gets so tired of her name at a certain phase in their life. Mom, 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 mom. I don't know if you moms have been through that. We're like, why is my name Mom? So tired of this name. Amazingly and astoundingly, God is not mom. He does not have those feelings. Sometimes I think I have to apologize to God because I'm so obnoxious to him. I prayed about this before. I'm going to pray about it again. I'm sorry, God. No. He wants us to be persistent in prayer. He encourages us to wear out his name in prayer. Fourthly, expect and receive God's presence. God may not answer an immediate yes to your specific request, but God will answer yes to you. God has constantly over and over again created new possibilities of grace out of our stubborn insistence that God remember us again. That God pay attention to us again. And notice that when Hannah rose from her prayer, something had shifted. She was changed. That's when she went to a room and ate and was sad no longer. She still had some more waiting to do, possibly months before she got pregnant. What was she thinking and what was she feeling? Maybe she had to have another bout of desperate praying. We're not told. But she was no more pregnant when she left that temple as she was when she arrived. And yet she was different because she had wrestled with God. Number five, God meets us in the place of pain. And this part, this part... God listens and cares, even when it appears to us that he is silent and inactive. The real danger for us is that our anger and our bitterness will turn us away from God. It would have been understandable if Hannah had not prayed, if she had stayed in bed, if she had not gone to the temple, if she was too emotionally wounded to go through those doors. People have often told me how hard it is to come back to church after grief. It's just hard to come back. But coming back to church is a little different than coming back to God in prayer. Hannah was in that sanctuary because it was the place where God is, the place of contact for her. And even when nothing has changed about our circumstances, In our wrestling with God, we are changed. Maybe not immediately, but we find we can keep holding on, even if it's by the fingertips, when we receive God's presence. And we have something Hannah did not have. We have a God who came to earth to live in human form, who descended into pain, who himself, Jesus, received no answers from God. We have Jesus to hold on to. And then Hannah teaches us that we don't just receive, but that the proper answer, the proper response to God's gifts is to give back. Now my heart shudders as a mom to think about leaving my toddler at the temple to be brought up there not by my side, but when grace brings us new life, we too must give back the grace that we have received. And this will include worship, giving grace back as praise. It will include testimony. It will include further dedicating the gift, the grace we have received to the service of God in every generation there has been a need for some in the church to move beyond receiving and receiving and receiving grace to returning grace to God. What was asked must become what is lent back to God. So I wanted to spend some time praying, praying some big prayers in this sanctuary. I'm not going to make Pastor George go to the door. We're just going to, all of us, pray big prayers, making no sound. I want you to bring your biggest, gnarliest prayer to God. Not a cold that we're going to get better from. We kind of know that. But something big. Some big things. Mental illness. Paralysis. We've been praying over paralysis. Stage 4 cancer. A bitter, cold, stubborn heart. Something that will not change unless God intervenes. That kind of a prayer. And then I want you to include in that prayer our church, ABC, right here. Ask for God's intervention right here at this church. Ask him to do a great and miraculous work here in our midst so that we can give grace out into our community. Ready? Ready to pray your biggest prayer to God? You have something in mind? Let's bow our heads, let's pray quietly. God, do something. We've prayed over this before. We've prayed too many times. We feel we're tired of it. We're sick of it. We're angry over it. Do something, Lord Jesus. Embrace yourself, God, because we are going to keep on praying. Do something.